Well, it is clear in Scripture that God has a keen interest in leadership. God has a particular interest in those who are charged to lead. From the very beginning of creation, He established humankind in a context that demands leadership. Men and women were made in His image. And according to His creative intention, they must exist in an order, an order of authority, an order of submission to that authority. That is clear from the very beginning. Those with authority, those that are charged to lead with that responsibility, are called leaders. And the work they do is the work of leadership. The leader and those who follow the leader are an inseparable union. Irrespective of the sometimes apparent division that might exist between the leader and those they lead, there is in fact an inseparable union between the two. We are, I would simply say, all following someone. That is by God's design. Adam, the first created, was to follow his father's commands. He was to listen to God, trust Him, and obey Him. When Eve came along, she was instructed to follow Adam, who was following his father's command. She was to listen to Adam and to trust him and to obey him. Their children would then follow, and they would listen to them, and they would trust them, and they would be charged to obey them. Humans, then, we understand by God's creative design, are dependent beings. We depend on leadership. We must be following in order for us to be what God intends us to be. That's why God uses so often in Scripture the metaphor of sheep. He calls those who follow Him His sheep. Sheep are perhaps among the most needy of all animals. They must follow or they will not survive. And so we understand that our survival depends in large measure on our following. This is what God would teach. Now this produces effects. This woven into the creative order, leaders and leadership and those who follow creates effects. And they're various. Sometimes it creates a positive effect. That's what we would hope for. But sometimes it creates a negative effect. And we focus on the effects. We, we are people of experience Whatever we are experiencing tends to direct what we actually believe about a thing. And so if we are experiencing negative effects of leadership principles, then we tend to think leadership is a bad thing and therefore we're going to be what? Independent of that sort of leadership. But the principle of leadership, by your positioning yourself as such, has still not been altered. You can claim an independence, but that doesn't mean you are independent. The reality is, when you step outside your role as follower, you haven't changed God's intention at all. When Eve stepped out from her right role as following and trusting what Adam told her God told him, when she stepped outside of that, she was pursuing independence, right? Well, maybe she thought so, but did that place her outside the principle of leadership? No, not at all. The only thing that happened was that she decided in usurping her 
rightful leader, Adam, that she would instead follow a different leader, and his name was Satan. But nothing had happened to the leadership principle. It was still there. She didn't gain any independence, as she might have thought. Some would have us think that that act of independence makes independence a thing. But it doesn't. It never sets you outside a leader. She chose to follow not the chief leader, the creator, but rather to follow a created being. She chose to follow a different leader. And even when she did that, it should be noted, she still hadn't stepped outside the leadership of God. Because Satan, now her appointed leader, was controlled by God and is always controlled by God. Satan doesn't move or go or extend beyond what God allows Satan serves God, not willingly, but nonetheless, actually. So the principle of leadership is non-negotiable among humankind. You cannot avoid it. And the effects of it, the human relationship effects of it in businesses and in families and in churches and in nations, the effects are attributable to the dynamic of leadership. The Bible teaches us this. And what I mean by that is when you feel the negative effects, it does not argue the point, it proves the point. It proves that you're being affected by this principle that is inviolable. It doesn't go away. Good days, bad days, good leaders, bad leaders, it doesn't go away. It's still there. Now I'd ask you to turn to the book of Hosea. That might take you a couple minutes. But if you'll find the book of Hosea... We can see this illustrated very practically for us in God's Word. The Bible teaches us this principle. Go to Hosea and then find chapter number 4 and verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord is a case against the inhabitants of the land because there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. The prophet begins by saying, this is the word of the Lord. This is God's word. And what he says is, God has a case against the inhabitants of the land. He has looked at them and he has seen no faithfulness. He has seen no kindness, no knowledge or understanding of him. Instead, he sees swearing and lying and deception and murder and on and on it goes. And because of that, God looks at the people and says the land itself mourns. The nation mourns. And all the people in the nation languish. Now, you might have been in that nation at that time and say, I'm doing just fine, thank you. Well, you'd be wrong. God would say, despite your apparent success compared to other individuals in your land, you are all languishing. None of you are reaching your potential. That's the idea. All of creation has been affected by this situation. And the question for us is, uh, is what caused all this? What caused this? Look at verse 4. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof for your people are like those who contend with the priest. You see the problem is at its center this essential relationship of leadership. Those who lead and those who follow. In this case, the priests are those who lead. 
And the people are those who follow. And what the prophet is saying through God is no one is accepting any responsibility. No one is holding anyone responsible. No one is offering reproof. There has been a crippling breakdown in leadership. The people who are appointed to follow are always contending, it says, with the priest who is the leader. Good verse 5. So you will stumble by day. And the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. This is God's indictment. This is his response. This is his judgment. Because leadership is wrecked, you will stumble. You and your leaders will stumble, and you will be destroyed. If I stop the mothers, I stop it. There's no expansion of this people. Verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also forget your children. There's a lack of knowledge. There's a lack of a right order in leadership. It starts at the top, but it doesn't end there. It goes all the way to the bottom. Those who lead and those who follow. This reality has made knowledge, listen, unattainable. It's not, it's not to be found because the order is so wrecked. Outside the right order then of leadership, I want you to understand according to God's Word, you'll lose your way. And you'll think you lost your way because of this or that, but in reality, you've got to get back to the, to the order of it all and find your way. That's what God would say. But in this case, the leader is rejected. God says, I reject you as my leader, and the people will suffer because of it, and then he says, I'll forget them too. I'll forget your children. And we should say, wow. That is a powerful action of intent on the part of God. That is, a, that is a frightening judgment at the point of the breakdown of leadership. And there's plenty of blame to go around, right? Oh yeah, but back in verse 4, right? No one wants to take responsibility. No one wants to carry the, the load. Verse 7, the more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I'll change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and then direct their desire toward their iniquity. The leaders feed on the sins of the people, give the people what they need in sinful direction, and, and together sin just multiplies. Verse 4 again, right? No one finds fault. No one holds anyone account for their sins. And in this condition, we're likely to say, well, there's an exception to the leadership principle. Humankind has moved out from under the leadership principle and in acts of independence have proven, though sinfully, the exception to the rule. But that is not the case. There is no exception to the rule. And God lays down the principle in verse 9. And it will be like people like priest so i will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds all of that chaos in israel all of that exercise of sinful independence was not an exception to the rule it proved the rule look what god said like people like priest 
No matter what independence you claim, there is an indissolvable union between the leader and the people they lead. No matter your attempts to usurp it, the indissolvable union between leaders and followers is proven, like people, like priests. Look at it in Isaiah chapter 9. I actually printed that for you. I think I did. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 14. So the Lord cuts off head and tail from Israel, both palm branch and bulrush, in a single day. The head is the elder and the honorable man, and the prophet who teaches falsehood is the tail. What is God saying? I'm about to take out the leadership. I'm about to take them all out. But there are folks connected to those leaders, and they're inseparably connected to those leaders. For those who guide this people are leading them, the followers, astray. And those who are guided by them, the leaders, are brought to confusion. Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does He have pity on their orphans or their widows. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all of this, His anger does not turn away, and His hand is still stretched out. God's action, God's determinations and actions of judgment do not violate the leadership principle. Even if he says, I'm going to wipe out the leaders, what he's saying is the leadership principle is in effect. And by my determination to wipe out the leaders, I realize, God says, I'm not surprised, I'm wiping out the people too. They are destroyed together. This is what God would say. And he's just in this. That's not our subject. But we should say he's just in this. He's righteous in this. Because he tells you every one of them, both leader and follower, is godless and an evildoer. Jeremiah, the prophet, chapter 5, verse 31. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? Because what happens is going to happen to both of you. Because you cannot separate the leader and the follower. The way one goes, the way the other goes. The way one goes, the way the other goes. Like priests, like people. Like people, like priests. You can't separate it. It's woven into the fabric of God's created order. Jesus nails down the same principle, by the way, in Matthew chapter 10. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. There's no separating them, the servant and the master. There's no separating them, the leader and the follower. No matter how contentious it becomes, no matter how much independent posturing there might be, the principle still exists. And it still guides the affairs of men. What does all of this say? Over and over and over and over again in the Bible. We are all slaves. We all serve someone. Period. No exceptions. None. We are followers, please hear me, by nature. It is in our essence of our being created by God. We are followers by design. And those who lead and lead well know that best because their leadership is ground in who they follow. 
So following is in our nature, either to our benefit or to our destruction. But it cannot not be there. It's always there. All of Israel was being led astray in the Old Testament. And as Jesus shows up on the scene in the New Testament, all of Israel is still being led astray by its leaders. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus is here and now He's speaking to those religious leaders. Leave them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they'll both fall into a pit. Like priest, like servant. Like priest, like people. Blind, all of them. All of them heading into a pit. Plenty of blame to go around. Lots of blindness is shared, Jesus says. But that doesn't prove an exception to the point. It makes the point. Leadership is an essential aspect of what it means to be a human. Leadership is an essential aspect of what it means to be humans living together. Someone has to lead and others have to follow. And together, they will be judged for that. How did you lead? How did you follow? Who led? Who followed? And the consequences can't be exaggerated. I can't add hyperbole to it. The Bible makes it clear. The consequences are eternal. They have an eternal effect. This issue of leadership and those who lead. Woven into the fabric of humanity. Fallen. Humanity fallen. Woven together then with what? Necessarily fallen leaders leading necessarily fallen followers. And something has to happen there in a profoundly spiritual way to give either of them any hope. Because they're all going to end up in the same pit. That's what the Bible would say. Now, in the fellowship of God's people, which we recognize today as the church, God has appointed leaders. In the Old Testament, of course, He appointed leaders. We look back to the Old Testament and we look at the patriarchs, God's leaders, men chosen by God to lead His people. We know their names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the leaders of Israel. And we think of Moses, right? The great leader that Moses was leading the followers out of bondage. That's a good picture of good leadership. Get them out of bondage. Take them into the promised land. But this great people that needed to be led was a greater people than he could lead alone. So he appointed 70 leaders to help him lead among the people. And the people were called to follow those leaders as they followed Moses, as he followed the commands of God. Moses passed away. And another leader rose. Joshua. Joshua would become the leader. The prophets served a leadership role. Mixed in there together with those patriarchs. The priests served a leadership role. Once the tabernacle and the temple was established. And then comes the kings. And the kings serve a leadership role. King after king after king. For centuries God's people had a king. 
And all of that, as you look into it, of course, is multifaceted. The leadership is not just kind of, kind of a singular line. There's facets to it. If you look into the nation itself, then what would you see? You would see husbands leading their wives, children following their parents, families following the leaders that God places over them. You'd see that just happening organically, naturally, I would say. No matter where you looked in the ancient days, you'll see the principle of leadership. But now we're walking with Jesus. It's still ancient for us. It's 2,000 years ago, but it's the first century now. And we've understood already in our study of Luke, the leadership principle is clearly in view. And it is affecting daily the lives of the followers, the people of Israel. Rome, of course, is their political leader. Rome is their their military leader. They control the economy. We've seen that already when we met Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, working for them. There's also the leadership that they allowed of the Jewish people. The Jewish leaders were there. Rome allowed that. That's what helped them advance their cause and, of course, keep the peace. They were given a lot of liberty by Rome, these Jewish leaders were. In fact, you could say they led the Jewish culture. They led the Jewish religion. And it's at this point in our study that Luke wants to turn our attention to Jesus and His appointed leadership. He's going to develop a small group of men. He's going to reinforce the leadership principle live and in person for them. And then He's going to ask them to carry that forward into the church. All right, so that takes us to Luke chapter 6, that long, very long introduction. As I look at the clock, too long. It means I can't finish. We'll see where we, see where we can get. Look at Luke chapter 6. It's only five verses where, where Luke introduces us to these that the Lord will call to lead. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when he came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, who he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. In that capture of five verses, we are introduced to the twelve apostles. And Luke begins it by saying what? At this time. What time? Well, he doesn't mean like 4.15. He doesn't even speak of a day, not even a season really. He's talking about the circumstances that were in view. This elevated tension that was already present between Jewish leaders and Jesus. The time of the religious leaders beginning to confront Him. Already in the first year of Jesus' ministry, they've tried to kill Him once. If you look up to verse 11, just before we read verse 12, it says, They themselves, that's the religious leaders, were filled with rage. They're discussing together how to end this thing. How are we going to deal with Jesus? And ultimately, of course, they will decide he is a threat that can only be dealt with one way. He has to be off the scene. They have to kill him. So it's at this time. That's what Luke's talking about. When the tensions are up, Jesus knows his mission. Jesus knows that he's marching toward a cross. 
And he knows that whatever these religious leaders do, ultimately they will be doing as instruments of his Father to accomplish what God intends to accomplish. So we might say it this way. At this time, when Jesus in his humanity would begin to be feeling the pressure. I think that's what Luke means. And along with that, the reality that in less than two years from this event, in less than two years, he'll be dead. In less than two years, he'll rise from the dead. And then after 40 days, he'll be gone. So he doesn't have a lot of time. His earthly work has to be handed off to someone else. He'll accomplish what he came to accomplish, which no one else will accomplish. But, but the work continues and he's got to have somebody to pass it off to. So this is the time to do that. At this time, it's time to assemble together from among the hundreds or thousands that are following him, 12 individuals that within two years will begin to lead. Now that's a pretty daunting task for, for any group of 12 and any leader to try to do. A leader of that kind of import, a leader of that kind of consequence, a, a CEO of a major corporation, I hope he has better than a two-year plan. Because he's not going to pull it off. He better be working toward that from the day he started, right? Every good leader understands that a part of his responsibility, in fact, how he'll be measured best, is what he leaves behind. And if he doesn't leave behind prepared leaders, he was a failure. I don't care how successful his, his bottom line was. You've got to be prepared for this. And Jesus knows that. So Luke and Matthew and Mark, who also record this same event, they all alert us to this matter of great importance. At this time, what? Jesus went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Now this is really important. Very significant. We've talked about this in our midweek prayer meetings. This is the model of prayer that Jesus gives us. Now we see some of Jesus' prayers. Uh, they're recorded for us. They're not all-nighters. They're very brief. Yet here, it says He prayed all night. What does that actually mean? Well, if you actually understand what prayer is, you'll understand what it means. But before we get to that, let me give you some axioms that will help you. You've heard this perhaps. Prayer is not bending God to your will. Prayer is being bent to the will of God. You've heard that maybe in various ways. So prayer is life to the Christian because life to the Christian is living in the will of God. So that means that if I'm in prayer with God, I don't have, listen, I don't have a lot to say. But I have a lot I need to hear. I need to know God, wisdom from you. I need to hear God direction from you. I need to know your will lest I could be bent to that will. Right? That just makes sense. So in prayer, when we enter into the very throne room of God, which is what the Bible would have us to see, we are there seeking His will. That's why we go. Jesus said what? Pray like this. Our Father who's in heaven, right? Hallowed be your name above all names, above all considerations, and may your kingdom come and your what? Will be done. That's why I'm here. 
That, that's my purpose in prayer. That's what the Lord told me to do. This is how He taught us to pray. Go into your prayer closet, acknowledge God as sovereign, and be willing to submit to His will, and then what? Find out what His will is. Which simply means to me, if you're going to pray, you need your Bible. If you're going to talk to God and seek to understand His will about a circumstance or a situation, I need to hear from Him. He, in fact, doesn't need to hear anything from me, and we certainly should voice our concerns and our, and our pursuit of His will, but He doesn't need that, right? He knows that before you say it. In fact, He knew that before you even, what, thought it. But yet we go with the intent, God, show me your will. Show me your way. Show me what is in me that keeps me from doing what I know to be your will. And then a Christian who is energized by that sovereign God reality and humbled and desirous to serve Him in accord with His will, that Christian is going to spend a lot of time in prayer. A lot of time begging that God would do what He has said must be done in my life. Our Lord warned the disciples concerning prayer, and He said, don't pray like others pray who don't understand the sovereignty of God and the need to be conformed to His will. Don't pray like those who believe it's their challenge in prayer to conform their gods to their will. Don't pray like them. Because when you pray like them, you'll use lots of words. And repetition, because you'll run out of things to say, so you just say it over and over again. Don't pray like that. Your God is sovereign. Go in there and seek His will. Come to God in prayer to listen, to learn, to confess and repent the obstacles that prevent you from either knowing His will or doing His will. This is how we pray. Here's Jesus on a mountain in His humanity, there all night. And we're told He's praying all night. And I just submit to you that does not mean He was talking to God all night as a monologue. It's not what he was doing. I know that's not what he was doing because he tells me in his word that's not how he functioned. John chapter 12, verse 49. You might make a note of it or even turn there. The Gospels regularly remind us of how Jesus functioned in relationship to his Father. And he wasn't showing up giving God monologues. No, the Son came to the Father. Verse 49 of John chapter 12. I do not and did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And I know His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So it's, it's easy for me to see the Son of God, very God Himself in His humanity, going to the Father in prayer and saying what? Lord, teach me what to say. Tell me what I need to say. When this event occurs that I can only imagine but yet not fully comprehend, tell me what to say. And then he says, I never said anything other than that. I won't speak other than that. In John chapter 5, if you'll turn over there, verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I can't do anything of myself. The Son can do nothing of Himself 
unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he, has, that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. This is the relationship of God the Son to God the Father in prayer. Father, show me. Father, reveal to me. Make clear to me. And on this night, at this moment, all night in prayer, when the day comes, Jesus is ready to act consistent with what the prayer content was. And we see what it was because on the very next day, he chooses 12. Now, I don't have it in holy writ, but I can exercise wisdom and discernment and a certain amount of logic and say, what did Jesus pray about with the Father all night? Help me choose these men. Give me the names of these men. Show me what your will is for them. Help me to understand how I could conceivably train them. Father, show me your leadership principles. Teach me your way. And he would search his very mind, the mind of Scripture itself, right? The Scripture that he would quote when he confronted circumstances. He's speaking as the Father speaks. And he's doing as the Father commands. When Jesus was here, He was fully God, or truly God, we should better say, and truly man. When Paul reflects on that reality, 1 Corinthians 11, don't turn there, verse 3, I want you to understand, Paul says, that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman. What is that? Leadership principle. Listen, God is the head of Christ. Leadership principle. So He goes to His Father, the head, and He asks for insight. And on the very next day, he chooses 12 men. And there's some striking things about these men. We read their names. How many of you could right now, having just read them, name the 12 apostles? We're not very good at that. We don't maybe understand how important they are. I hope over the coming weeks you'll learn how important these men are. And maybe you'll be able to recall their names. By the way, their names are going to be written down for those who forget. We'll get to that in a minute. But there are some striking things about this list of these names. Number one, there's not a single Pharisee on the list. There's not a single Sadducee on the list. There is not one scribe on the list. And by that I I would say there is not one single religious leader of Jerusalem and Israel on this list. There were hundreds of priests at this time, maybe thousands, serving in the temple and in the synagogues. Not one single priest is on the list. There's a sense of judgment in that. It's really not our subject, but I should point it out. This is an indictment against the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, you might lead, you know, under your own traditions of men. You can't lead in my kingdom. You don't qualify in my kingdom. They were blind, he'll say. They were dogs, He'll say. They were serving not his father, he would say. They were serving their father, he would say. Satan. You can't serve Satan and be a leader, Jesus says, in my kingdom. They're just not fit to lead. Even though they have the position of leadership, listen, they're not fit to lead for Christ. So who is on the list? Well, no one who has any theological training is on the list as far as we can discern. No scribes, no priests, no Pharisees, no Sadducees. 
No, what we have on the list, without exception, it seems, as best we can understand, and we'll work some of that out in the coming weeks, these are just common, ordinary men. One was a tax collector. We know we met him already. That would, in fact, be the closest you would come to an important person on this list. But if you were a Jew, you wouldn't view that as an important person. No, we've already talked about that. He's a traitor. He's a thief. He's a turncoat. From there, the list of these men includes, well, at least four fishermen. Peter, James, John, Andrew. Others might have been fishermen. We can't tell for sure. We can learn what we can learn about them from Scripture, and it really is little about them in many cases, which would just indicate what? There wasn't much about them. There <laughs> wasn't much about them that you could write down of noteworthy. Ordinary. That's what I would say of these men. Ordinary. Ordinary men don't get the press. Ordinary men don't get the attention. Ordinary men are largely ignored. But not in God's economy. You see, one of the most encouraging aspects of God's plan is His use of ordinary folks. That should encourage all of us. It should encourage you and me. We are the kind of people that God uses. The kind of people God chooses to use are ordinary people most of the time. And then He takes those ordinary people and He molds them and He makes them into people capable of amazing things. That's what God does. And so it is with these leaders here that Jesus chooses. They're all Galileans, it seems pretty clear. Which is interesting because not any of them are from the religious elite and not any of them are even from Jerusalem. There's likely a terrorist on the list. You can see him there. Simon, who was called the Zealot. The Zealots were a group of Jews living under this Roman domination who said, you know what, we ain't all about this deal. At all. They were renowned for being knife bearers. And in particular, what they would do is they would walk up to an isolated Roman and they would stab him in the back. And then they'd run off. Now, regardless of what you think about Rome, if you think about anything about government, that's terrorism. That's what that's called. And here he is, Simon, not Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot identified enough that by calling him that, he would be identified in that group, and it's pretty, pretty reasonable to say he was among the terrorists. This kind of guy that Jesus would choose. There are two Judases there. Judas is a common name in the first century. One of them is here, Judas, the son of James. You'll find that he's also Thaddeus. That's a, another name he goes by. The other, of course, is Judas Iscariot. And already, right here, we're told by Luke... There's something unique about this one. Don't, don't lose sight of this one. He will become a traitor. And later we are told by the gospel writers that Jesus knew that, of course, all along. Yet with the exception of Judas Iscariot, who would, of course, kill himself and have to be replaced so that there would be 12. These 12 men will become the very foundation upon which the church will be built. They're going to go and preach the gospel. They're going to go establish the church. You are here because of them. They will be its leaders initially for their whole lifetime. 
They're going to establish the pattern of our Lord regarding leadership and those who will lead when they are gone. So while they are here, they will train up their replacements. This is what a leader now in the church must look like. All of that is to say these ordinary men were destined for extraordinary greatness, a responsibility almost beyond our comprehension because we just take it all for granted. They will be enshrined. And not just on stained glass windows in old country churches, though you will see those. One apostle on every window, or together on one window. But they will be enshrined in heaven. Uh, Let me show you that. So turn over to Revelation. Turn to the last book of the Bible. So that we can get a sense of the importance of of this extraordinary call that they have. In Revelation chapter 21, John, getting the Revelation's of Christ and His kingdom and the future events. In verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Go to verse 10. He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and a high mountain, and He showed me that holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It had the very glory of God. The city's brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And the city has this great and high wall look with twelve gates. And at the gates, twelve angels. And the names were written on the gates, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Etched for all eternity are who? The patriarchs. The sons of the twelve tribes of Israel. Carved on those gates that you will go in and out of for all eternity. Never forgetting the importance of those twelve of the children of Israel. But look at verse 14. The wall of the city has twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You cannot walk in and out of this city without being reminded of the importance of those who lead, of the importance of those who God chooses to lead His people, the significance that He could use ordinary men to accomplish such extraordinary things that they deserve to be etched for all eternity in the very gates of heaven itself. That's the best I can do to help you get your head around what these men are going to become. Men who will preach. Men who Jesus will give the power to heal and accomplish miracles so that the earliest listeners will know that they were in fact speaking on behalf of God. They will give us the New Testament. They will suffer for the cause of Christ. They will all die for their faith. John is sometimes called an exception because he died a natural death in exile on the island of Patmos. This list, these men that Jesus chose with the Father's direction, is it not amazing to you that He could take such a shaggy bunch of people and turn them into this? They will become almost immediately the true leaders of Israel. 
before they become the leaders of the church. Jesus discounts the leaders of Israel. They are not. They are not leaders of Israel, and the ones who follow them are not Israel, Jesus would say. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 20, reflecting on this idea, says what? Where is the wise man in the church? Where is the scribe in the church? Where is the debater and the philosopher of this age in the church? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? How? By choosing foolish people and raising them up as leaders in His church. There is no question, people, by any measure, whether it's secular or sacred, these men will change the world. So that's our start into this journey of leadership. I want us to learn about these men. I want us to learn about the men who will walk in their steps. Leadership. Leaders. Those called to lead the church. And I hope you'll follow along. I hope you'll listen if you can't be here and keep up. Because I want you to be encouraged by this, which is really our point this morning. God will use common, ordinary people just like you and me. Let's pray and seek His will and His purpose for our part in His kingdom. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank You for this picture of ordinariness. We understand better, I think, why Paul would say to the church, make it your life's ambition to live an ordinary life. Oh, that's where you are ready to be used by God. So, Father, we thank you for ordinariness. We celebrate the common, the lowly, the least. And then when you do anything with us with that lot... It will be clear that it was you and not me that did that thing. That's your plan. May we find our part in it. For Christ's sake we ask. Amen. You've been listening to pastor and Bible teacher Steve Wilson of Grace Community Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky. We trust you've been encouraged and challenged by this message. If you would like to listen to more of Pastor Wilson's messages or obtain more information on the ministry of Grace Community Church, you can go to our website at gccbg.com. That's gccbg.com.